You're listening to the Sound Girls podcast with Tori and Katie. Alicia Martin is a former band director turned touring audio person. She mostly works on the roving versions of Broadway shows and can't wait for the pandemic to end so we can all run around and make art again. In the forced free time of COVID-19, she's completed all but one class in macroeconomics on a double major AS degree in accounting and business administration to go with her prior degrees in music education and show production and touring. She's also learning welding, plumbing, and sewing so she can make her own masks. Alicia loves school, dogs, all things Star Wars, and making musicals for the masses. (laughs) Woo! And we come back to you guys. (laughs) Welcome, Alicia. Man, that's so awkward to sit there and hear somebody read your thing. That's that's so strange. I sit in the dark on my side of the board for a reason. I don't like being out in the middle. We're backstage for a reason. Oh my God, you guys don't have like the secret urge to be in the spotlight? Hard no. What is wrong with me? Am I in the wrong, am I pursuing the wrong thing? I mean, I've had my moments, to be honest. (laughs) Right? I mean, I like having fun with people and joking around, but I have no desire whatsoever to be on any stage anywhere with the spotlight on me. No, thank you. (laughs) Okay, so let's go back to just growing up. (laughs) So uh, what happened in your childhood that made you want to be basically invisible? Do I have to pay a copay for this? If we're doing- <laughs> what was it about your roots and your personality and your hobbies and such that led you to audio? I kind of ended up here by accident. I didn't really mean to end up an audio engineer. That wasn't <laughs> my life's goal. I think maybe five or six, I wanted to be an astronaut. And uh, there was a while I wanted to be a PE teacher. And uh, uh, for a while, I wanted to be a pilot, but I can't see for squat. Don't let Mm. the LASIK fool you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I always loved music and frankly, the arts in general. And um, I was a band kid, for sure. From as soon as they would let me play, I wanted to join the band. What instrument did you play? Uh, I was a percussionist. I like to hit things. It's good nice. for stress. Yes. <laughs> wow. So wait, what were you listening to? Uh, when I was a kid? Yeah. Oh, I, people think it's a cliche, but I really always have listened to a bit of everything. Some things I can stand for longer than others. Right. But I really will sit and listen to anything for a while. I generally followed behind whatever my brothers were into. I had two older brothers. And so, you know, we went through uh, heavy metal into hair metal in the 80s. My other brother was very much on the leading edge of when hip hop became a thing (laughs) in the 80s. So I was listening to, you know, Luke Skywalker and Jam Master J and Grandmaster Flash and all that stuff. I was listening to that way back um, because of where I'm from. And obviously with my, you know, lack of an accent here, uh, surrounded by (laughs) country music, the mainstream country music. From the you know eighties and nineties with your George Strait and your Keith Whitley and your I don't know Trisha Yearwood that kind of stuff, but also being where I'm from, uh, just at the foothills of the mountains of the uh, of the Appalachians, bluegrass is all around us here. So nice. very familiar with all that stuff. And all that time spent around people trying to learn how to make sounds out of their instruments. I was the one that listened while all the other sections were working on their part and listened to what they did. You know, what do you do to make your instrument sound like that? And I think all of that stuff you're listening to your whole life just kind of shapes what you hear and how you hear. And later on, what do you like? What do you not like? And when you hear something, what about that says that that's good to you? 
or bad. Right. Mm-hmm. So then how, um, how did you actually get into audio? I was a band director. I taught a uh, middle and high school band in North Carolina. I was getting really burned out really quickly in my late 20s because there's an awful lot about teaching that has nothing to do with trying to make quality young humans. <laughs> so mm. I'm clearly a very angry person, right? <laughs> so oh, yeah. Percussion. I was going home ticked every day. I would just be just be mad all the time. And I was like, I can't do this. I got to... I got to find another way forward. And if that means I need to walk away from this for a while and come back or just find another path, let's figure that out for a minute because I can't be ragey all the time. That's not cool. <laughs> While I was trying to figure out what to do next, I thought I was going to go to grad school for um, for music education. And I was um, touring around universities, talking with places about being a graduate assistant in their marching band programs and trying to decide what path I want to do that. And so while I was hopping around visiting schools, I went to a boatload of concerts that summer. So anybody that I wanted to see that was near that school, I was going to some shed that summer or some little theater to go see whoever it was. While I was there, I just, I just started noticing the people working the blinky things and sliding the slidey things and turning the turny things. Just started to wonder, can I do that? I mean, I know what I want to hear. I know what I like. If somebody will tell me what those buttons do. Maybe that's a thing. So, you know, fast forward a little over a decade. Let's see, that would have been... 07, something like that. So you got into it through, I guess, school? I did. I uh, I started looking around online, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, my path I knew was going to be a little bit different because I was just a frog's hair shy, 30 years old, that my situation was not the same as somebody, say, fresh out of high school trying to, to go learn, that the longer that I was out of the workforce, the more money I was losing, that I was not actively right. <laughs> and gainfully employed. <laughs> Yeah. And that makes a bit of a difference when you're not young and you know you don't have as much of a support system to pay for you. Uh, so in looking for places where I could get things done quickly and learn as much as I could as fast as possible, uh, I ended up at Full Sail in Florida. And this was uh, while it was still associate's degrees there before they went to a bachelor's program. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. What I like about that place is that you can absolutely get as much as you are willing to put into it out of it which is very much like the real world. Right. Yeah. If all you do is go to your classes and just do the assignments and you stop there, cool, you're going to get your same piece of paper at the end. But that place is very well set up to, if you're willing to ask somebody to go a little bit deeper or let you get a little more hands-on or get some more time on whatever piece of gear, they're willing to work with you if you take the initiative. Right. So I literally figured out to the dollar what I was spending per day to be there. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I'm a nerd like that. <laughs> I was a math minor. Wow. Yeah, my other teaching certificate is in math. <laughs> so cool. They're so cool. No, just a big fat nerd. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, I figured out what I was spending to be there. And if I felt like in a day that I hadn't gotten at least that many dollars out of my day, then then I got off my butt and went and wandered around a lab somewhere, somewhere where there was a spare seat where I could go sit down and play with stuff. I feel like that would really enforce gratitude. You know, that you have the opportunity to be there and to learn, and it's a gift. And I've been telling them for years that while it's cool at the end of your programs that they, you know, have your grand master projects where you get to pull out every big gun, bell and whistle you've ever wanted to play with there <laughs> to put on your big final show or whatever. Right. I said that there needs to be another class after that. There needs to be one more step. And you walk into a small room with a pile of assorted gear that 
may or may not work or may or may not match. And there may or may not be enough pieces to do what you want to do. Because that's what a real event is. You have your list of gear, but then here's everything that you're given. There you go. And you need to throw that gig up as fast as you can and as successfully as possible. That's really smart. Yeah. Did you actually tell them that? I've told them that several times. Yeah, <laughs> That's clever. That would be like a important challenge. It's realistic. Because it's, you know, it doesn't matter where you go to learn these things that, that we do. If you do any of it in an organized educational setting, somebody's put some money together from tuition to buy some fancier toys. Right. And the reality is, is that most of us don't get to play with those fancy toys again until way down the road. Yep. <laughs> but it's one of those things where, did you karate kid the whole thing? Did you Mr. Miyagi it? Did you learn how to... <laughs> goes into here comes out of here and right <laughs> like make the line or did you just say yeah i can spin the knobs on the flashy things like <laughs> right yeah i mean it's great to have on your resume that you've worked with certain consoles or you know whatever gear it is sure. but then once you get out into the real world it's like okay here is everything that you've you know you've been given now can you put it together and can you make it sound just as good as if you had this flashy console totally and i think there's some degree too of of getting out of the gear and just focusing more on what you what you heard. You know, we started this conversation off talking about what I was listening to when I was little. And I think everything in your whole life has built up your ear. And that's like a big abstract kind of <laughs> concept there. Your ear. What, what do you hear and how do you hear and why do you hear it that way? Like nobody is ever going to want me to be their mixer for like an EDM set or something like that, because that's just not what I've spent the most time dealing with. And it's not what I'm most familiar with. And I don't know immediately the idiosyncrasies of, of how these things are supposed to fit together. So it'll take me a lot longer to throw that mix together and make that sound like something anybody would want to hear than it would for say like a power pop female vocal, which is right up your alley. Yeah. Awful lot of my playlists. Right. <laughs> like a thing like, yeah, I could park her in front, make sure she sounds good, and then make a nice, pretty sound around her. Yeah, I could do that. Mm -hmm. It just yeah. depends on your background. And if you get so focused on what big, fancy $100,000 console you're playing with and not, I don't know, Mackie or whatever, mm, whatever's, whatever's yeah. inexpensive right now, that might be the name on it, but the concept's still the same. You're still trying to cut out the things that don't sound very good to you or make things balance, turn some things up, turn some other things down. It's all the same concept, just how fancy and how surgical the weapons are that we're using to deal with it are. Yeah. So to me, it's really encouraging and um, kind of gives hope to you know people in the industry that you started as a as a band director as a music director and you said when you were 30 you decided oh audio seemed cool like you didn't have a background in that and you decided i'm just going to start this new track but in reading your bio you've worked on touring broadway shows and I find that incredibly inspirational. Um, <laughs> I'm a huge Broadway fan myself, and I want to hear about that journey, how you got there. Once again, it, it wasn't exactly where I meant to end up. <laughs> <laughs> Happy accident. Yeah. When I stopped teaching and when I decided I wanted to go to school to learn about audio, and that, that's a funny story too, is that I tried to act like when I went down there to school that it, you know, in the first few months right there, everybody's like, oh, are you an audio person? Are you a video person? Do you lighting? And I tried to act like I didn't have a preference. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, you know, I tried to give everything a chance and be real about it. But the reality is, is that my lifetime experience up to that point 
lent itself more towards sound things than it did towards lighting things. If you could see what I'm wearing right now, you would know that <laughs> nobody wants me to, you know, pick out what color socks you're wearing or, <laughs> or, you know, what color light to throw on the keyboard player. But yeah, while I was there, that school is very much bent towards the rock and roll touring side of things, which is cool. They have a lot of people with a lot of experience there to, you know, share their knowledge and help show you how things are done in that world. And so while I was there and I was working really hard and doing well, they were like, man, you ought to be with this company or this company and you ought to, you know, and I just kept hearing that over and over again. And I had in my head that my trajectory when I left there was going to be you know, flying the stage right PA for Kenny Chesney. <laughs> That's what I thought was going to be the gig. Yeah. I wasn't thinking about Broadway at all. Mm. But once I was out in the working world, what happened was that all of that life experience I had from before, from being a band nerd and being a teacher and for being in that environment, the doors kept opening for me in theater world. Hmm. And I'd be like, oh, well, okay, I guess I'll do that for a while. And then I kept trying to inch my way back over to rock and roll. And then <laughs> another door would open. And then I was back this way. <laughs> like, but no, I want to go on the road. I want to, you know, I want to be Garth's monitor tech or whatever, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Until finally I quit fighting it. And so why why are you fighting? You're moving so quickly if you will just stay on this side of the road where people seem to appreciate your experience and you seem to immediately be able to give them what they want. Whatever it is you like to hear seems to be what these people like to hear. Right. So quit fighting it. <laughs> and so eventually I did. And now I'm pretty much thoroughly a theater cat and I'm not trying to pretend like I'm something else. Wow. That's awesome. I tried to jump back into rock and roll for like five minutes about five years ago. And I uh, moved to Nashville for a hot second, and I had been there less than a month, and I was working at one of the sound shops, and they were trying to figure out what they wanted to do with, again, this theater cat who had all this touring experience, but had done it in theaters where everybody is always fighting for the same six inches of space downstage center. Everybody needs to be there right now. Whereas, <laughs> you know, arenas and football stadiums and sheds, there's more space. You guys can spread out and get away from each other and go to your neutral corners a little more. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, while I was working for that place, I uh, I went home for my grandmother's birthday. And on the way back, I got smeared across the interstate by an 18-wheeler. Oh, my God. Wow. So that pretty well gave me an inkling that perhaps rock and roll is not the path for you. <laughs> That's a little sign, eh? Holy shit. Just subtle, oh right? Yeah. So, nice one, God. Clearly, I'm fine. And, you know. Yeah, whatever. thank God. But that was like your lightning bolt to say, hey. Perhaps this is not the path in this moment. Let's redirect. Wow. wow. <laughs> I can't believe you're so like joyful and fun for having something like that happen to you. Well, I mean, it's it's not always that way, you know. Uh, yeah. Anybody in our business, especially if you spend enough time on the road, everybody has their ups and downs. Everybody has their dark moments, but it's it's how you you know you cope with it. Do you dwell in the darkness or do you try to keep? Gosh, this sounds really profound. And you know, oh, you tell us. To, Go for it. You're trying to push to, to push towards the lighter side, and you know, forward motion, man. Just one foot in front of the other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, what was your first um, play experience? How did that go? Like, were you good right off the bat if it was, you know, this thing you were meant to do? Oh, I don't know about this meant to do thing. That sounds so magical. <laughs> I'm just saying, again, like I said before, nobody wants me to mix EDM or like screamo <laughs> thrash metal rawr, where people are doing that. Nobody wants to hear that from me. Right. Because I don't know what to do with that other than I would probably turn it down too turn far. Down. Everybody that likes that would be, un would be unhappy with me. Right. My first experience doing it as a 
professional would be, I guess, sort of as a band director when people expected me to know things about sound equipment and I didn't. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, They just assumed because you were in charge, you knew everything. They just assume you know how to plug the microphones together and what to do with the knobs. And (laughs) Once uh, I was committed to really making the career change, my first gig was at Dollywood. That's where I got my foot in the door. So I worked in East Tennessee. And while that's not a a play per se, my first gig there was doing kids shows. It was um, Dolly's Pet Project, her imagination library. I don't know if you know about her charity. She gives books to kids for free. Yeah. From birth to age five, you can get a free book from Dolly Parton every month. That's awesome. Really cool program. Just, you know, she saw a need in the area where she's from. And now it's an international program. Anyway, they do live action storybooks in the summertime, and it was sponsored by um, the book publisher. And so they would uh, act out books, and we'd do six shows a day, seven days a week for 14 weeks in the summer Wow! in the crappiest theater on the park with the worst gear, and it smelled bad because what they did when we weren't doing the kids' shows was a little movie that had special effects that went with it, and so they made it rain indoors. Oh, no. But the seating was pews with cushions on them. Oh, smart. (laughs) Cushions that you're raining on indoors in the summer smells great. Oh, I bet. Yeah. That's that's a whole vibe right there. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. It's the non-magical side of the shows that we put together. Right. But that was where I got my foot in the door, which to throw in as well, those first few months when I was looking for a job were really hard, despite uh, being a (laughs) grown-up. Already having had job experience in general, not just being, you know, somebody who's never held a job before and, right. and trying to get get one. And here I am with my, you know, my shiny new audio experience and my, in hindsight, willingness to work for ridiculously low wages. Well, okay. Yeah. Because you had full sale on your resume. Yep. But from what you're sharing, that was your only audio experience. How did you get noticed with only that on your resume? Networking, it was the first way. Um, I answered an ad from Playbill.com for a theater in Pigeon Forge. And I went up there to check out the place. And they wanted me not just to be an audio person. They wanted to be uh, a lighting person and an effects person and a maintenance person. And they installation, they basically wanted me to rewire their whole place and fix all their stuff. Oh. They wanted me to do it for about nothing. And I said, No. Good. <laughs> You'll need to pay me for those six different jobs. But I understand that you don't have any money now. But here's what we can do. We can, I, I can put you on a plan, man. Here's a, <laughs> we can write it down and have a contract and everything. And as you get more butts in the seats and you have more revenue, you can pay me more of that revenue. <laughs> Smart. And so my money will be tied to how many butts are in the seats just to get us going mm-hmm. here. But to say that I would be willing to work for these teeny peanuts forever no i'm not doing that well they didn't they didn't even like that plan they just wanted to do tiny peanuts but before i left i uh had uh made friends with susan rose who uh is a lighting designer she's uh been a part of ringo stars crew for years and she lives there she lives in that area and she said hey while you're there why don't you go talk to this person over at dollywood and just touch base with them you know make a point of contact so I went over and said hi, and that person said, wow, we don't have anything for you right now. I wish we did, but I'll keep in mind, I promise, if, if something opens up, I'll call you. It wasn't even a week later, and he called me up and said, I don't even know if you'd be willing to do this. This is a kid's show, and normally this is something somebody, you know, in between 
their, you know, years at Belmont University or something like that. This is the kind of thing that those people will do right. in the summer. But if you're interested in it, it's yours. And I said, heck yeah. So I took weekly rates at the cheapest hotels while I was looking for a place to live up there. <laughs> wow. And uh, ate an awful lot of terrible stuff on park <laughs> because it was cheap. And um, my very first show as a professional audio person was with Dolly Parton in my show. Wow. Dolly Parton was there? Like I said, it was her pet project. It's her her charity. And they were adding a new book to the, you know, the rotating repertoire. So she was showing up for that grand opening for the summer. And so there it was. I had a nice big star symbol on that figure. My boss standing right behind me and my boss's boss sitting over there in the audience. My boss's boss's boss over there. Wow. All of them just saying, as soon as she walks off stage, you better turn that mic off. <laughs> yep. Because she's lovely and candid, not because anything bad would happen. Just, right. She like, is, don't uh, shatter Dolly for me right now. No, not at all. You know, as you as you work in entertainment over time, you, you meet people that have some degree of fame. And one of the most horrible things that happens is, you know, as you're alluding to right there, is that you meet somebody and they shatter that glass for you. And you're like, oh, right. she is not that at all. She is everything and exactly as you would hope she would be. That is exactly how mm -hmm. she is. She's a delightful human. Oh, good. Really nice. Yeah. And, you know, who was I? Some eon, freshly hired, working for nothing audio engineer that she was going to be there for, you know, two shows for her kids thing and then take all like who was I she had no reason to be nice to me but she was delightful that's always so encouraging when right. you get to meet yay for yeah. good people that's really nice that's, that's not a bad first gig it I sounds know. like a mix of glamour and like absolute not glamour but I like that <laughs> but you know that I made the best of it that summer it literally there were no days off wow that whole you know however many months that was and um you know in between shows I would there was all kinds of random pieces of busted stuff in the corners of this place. They would have like a hook on the wall and there'd be like seven or eight mics up there in various states of disrepair, you know, mm -hmm. like the worst, the worst knockoff example of the Britney Spears mic, right? <laughs> <laughs> Got it. That's bad. It's like, that's what they were going for, but this was the, you know, the, the cut rate version. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I would tinker with stuff and I would, you know, open up gear and, if it was something easy to fix, I'd just fix it. And hey, look, now I have more gear in my room. And <laughs> hey, look, now I have compressors that work. What do you know? Wow. Making the best of what you have. Yeah. And, you know, in a setting like that, it can be easy um, to fall into. It's like hanging out in the teacher's lounge, which I realize is not necessarily a metaphor everybody's going to understand. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Totally. Generally... You tell young teachers, don't hang out in the teacher's lounge. Nothing good is going to come of that. What's going to happen is that if you hang out in the teacher's lounge, everybody sits around and stews on everything awful that's happened, and you just stir, you just spin in that negativity over and over again. Right. You sit there, and you drink Diet Coke and eat honey buns out of the vending machine, and y'all just talk about every crappy thing that either other teachers or the government or some snotty kid did <laughs> Right. instead of focusing on how am I going to get that one kid to, you know, figure out that it's be natural is this, this finger and not for sure, you know, like, how am I right. going to give him to figure it out? It's the same thing in theater too. In theater, the line between cast and crew is a little more smeared than it is, say, in, you know, the giant superstar rock and roll world and that you're all backstage hanging out, waiting for the people to come in, waiting for time to do your thing. Right. And it can be easy sometimes when things are rough 
or you're tired or you're, you know, you've been in eternal winter because somehow you keep going between cities and you've had like six months of winter instead of three because you keep repeating it in different cities. You know, it can be easy to get mired in everything that's wrong. And just even as a human right now, I'm trying to focus on not getting mired in anything, trying to focus on what's good and what is forward motion, because it's so easy. We've just seen in a pandemic to just start that spiral and pretty soon that's all you can see. And that's all you can think about is everything that's wrong and not how much of stuff is really pretty good. You know? <laughs> wow. And that's such, that's an active choice every day too. Yeah, for real. Especially with, you know, as uncertain as everything is right now, you know, trying to figure out where next jobs you're going to be and should I take XYZ gig or go do this or, you know, trying to not get um, lost in that uncertainty and let it just, you know, bring you down and let it destroy other parts of your life too, you know? My revelation for the last couple weeks, <laughs> literally, this is this is fresh. This is like oh, this is within the last 15 days, is that every day can't be cheat day. <laughs> yeah. What were you doing, Alicia, right before the pandemic hit? What were you doing work-wise? And then how did that whole momentum death happen for you? I was in L.A. with uh, Book of Mormon. We were at the Amundsen Theater. Book of Mormon's fantastic. And uh, I did not mix our last show. (laughs) My A2 did. (laughs) Wow. we didn't know it was our last show. Yeah. Before the show started, I was sitting at my desk and figuring out, you know, housing and travel with our next several cities, you know, whether I wanted to take the company travel or, you know, do it my own way. Right. And then that was, I think, a Wednesday. And then they said, we're done the next morning. And when they said, we're done, we didn't know for how long. I said, uh... We're going to come in 8 a.m. Saturday and load it out. And we did. And apparently some people had an inkling then, but didn't, you know, there was so much that was unknown and it was all happening so fast that we didn't really know, are we packing for right now? Or are we packing for months or what? Yeah. <laughs> What's the plan? Because, you know, the way you're going to pack those trucks for even just the end of a tour, you know, much less a, a pandemic is very different than how you pack show to show. And then, you know, trying to coordinate that from afar uh, for a long time, the trucks, you know, sat in California because nobody was allowed to go anywhere. And right. even if you could get them back to where all the rental shops are, which are closer to New York, nobody was allowed to be in those places and everybody was quarantined. And what happens to your stuff? Like, what do you... <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. What an unresolved mess. <laughs> Trying to figure it out. So, yeah. I mean, but they, I guess there's some solace in the fact that we all did it together, you know? And we're all still trying to kind of figure out what to do, what to do after it. And I think it's changed a lot of folks' uh, priorities and how they see life on the road, uh, working life in general, you know, work-life balance, what's really important, mm-hmm. you know, how, um, what's enough, yeah. you know, what's enough toilet paper or <laughs> <laughs> what's enough space in the house that if we have to be here together, but yet we need some space apart from each other. Right. What's enough space? Yeah. Concept of the man cave and the she shed, you know, that kind yeah. of thing for, <laughs> Gotta have for your, your space. relationship health and that kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what I was doing. I was doing Book of Mormon and then that's done. <laughs> uh, so looking ahead, do you have any hope for rejoining the Broadway touring scene in the coming months? Oh, uh, yeah, totally. Um, it's in the works. Things are wrestling in our world. And, you know, some of the first folks back out are actually doing it within just the next couple of weeks. People are in rehearsals. There is um, a mad dash for rehearsal space 
right now for people to try to, especially in, you know, New York City, people right. trying to get together and get, you know, shows that were already existing and just need to be re-upped, don't need to be made from scratch, trying to get those up and going as quickly as possible. So it's coming back. You'll start seeing uh, road shows within the next month. The Sure Things will be back in theaters within the month, and then we'll, the first few will start on Broadway, and it'll trickle on. Wow. It's exciting. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out where I fit in. It was funny. The week before you know, the world shut down, I was, uh, was talking to s- several different groups of people because my tour was supposed to be ending last fall anyway. And so I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And, uh, you know, I had some options and uh, folks were like, hey, do you want to come you want to come play with this? Do you want to maybe come do this? And it was a it was a great feeling. But then the world shut down and everybody's plans went all to heck. And so <laughs> and so now just as a collective, we're all kind of trying to figure out, OK, so what do we do now? Is your your gig actually happening? Or is right. this gig actually happening? Or mm-hmm. yes, it's happening, but it's happening like a year from now or like it's still another six or seven months between this X, Y, and Z is happening. Yeah, slowly but surely. And how has the existing like touring staff and stuff, how is how has that changed? Because some folks that were pretty close to retirement or pretty close to done have just said, Yeah, I think I'm out. <laughs> I think I like sleeping in my bed or <laughs> Yeah, fair. <laughs> being in my own house, you know, digging digging in my own dirt, that kind of thing. You know, trying to feel out what people want to do and, and how people's uh priorities are are different. Yeah. How do we go forward with that new perspective? Yeah. Well, you know, and it's a whole new thing too. Um, Broadway is one of some of the first ones to shut down Yeah, and will be the last ones back because it's, it's not the same as putting, you know, an artist with a five piece backing band on a stage. And, you know, there only needs to be a few people backstage for that. And then you've got your folks, you know, separated by barriers or whatever. And then there are the people out there in the audience. Well, for every Every 10 people you see on stage at a Broadway show, there's at least 30 backstage, maybe 40. And so that's in tight, enclosed spaces. Mm -hmm. And we have oddly taken pride for so long in the the show must go on vibe. You know, we all have stories about being sick as a dog and having a bucket next to us to just get through the show. I don't feel like that paradigm can really exist anymore. We've got to we've got to have a new viewpoint because that's not okay anymore. Right. And so how do we move forward? We've had understudies and things like that for actors forever, but what do you do for the crew? Right. And the crew so often gets overlooked. Yeah. Too. What's the, what's the next evolution? Because telling a crew member to cool, take a bucket. <laughs> that's not okay. I don't know how it was ever okay, but it's well, crazy. But, we, but we've all done it and are oddly proud of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We've all done it, but it's gotta be another way. We've got to have backup plans. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much um, that you're experiencing on the Broadway side that's very much similar to the theme park side that I work in. Just, you know, we have, you know, some shows back, but still there's so many remaining that we don't have a timeline on. And there's, you know, you don't know what that environment's going to be like if and when they come back too. And like you said, you know, now there's some, there's a greater awareness on work-life balance. And there has to be because now we've all collectively gone through this really trying time. Yeah. And it makes us look at things differently. Yeah. Do you have any advice for people who are looking to find their way 
and may not know what that answer is, but they're looking, they're looking for a sign. They're looking for some hope for their path. And maybe it doesn't need to be a truck. <laughs> Let's hope not. Maybe <laughs> not. No. Maybe, it doesn't need... <laughs> maybe I'm a little more hard-headed. Um, I would say, say yes. Be willing to try things. You never know what experiences in your past are going to lead you to be the perfect person for situation in the future. Like, I had no way of knowing when I was 12, sitting on the back row of the band, listening to how my teacher was trying to get the, all the different parts of the clarinet section to play together and the little th- differences they were making and how they held their mouth and changed their embouchure for intonation purposes, how that was developing what I hear and my opinions about what I hear. And, you know, audio specific, I would say keep listening to music. Even when you're tired and even when you're sick of it, keep listening because the more familiar you are with more different things, the deeper you get into audio, you're going to start noticing things about songs you've known forever and recordings you've heard since you were a kid. And you're going to hear brand new things in them and go, wow, I never noticed that characteristic sound from the, you know, the rhythm guitar or whatever. Or, you know, wow, he really tunes that snare drum differently for this kind of song on that record than he does on anything else. Life experience and listening experience forms what you're going to do going forward. And you never know what in your past is going to pop up and be the perfect thing in the future. I love that. It makes life seem so full circle and fateful. And that's like, that's my vibe. That's my jam. (laughs) That's my favorite thing. (laughs) That's awesome, Alicia. I'm just curious, um, like, what are you stoked about in the future? uh, If that's possible to, to think? Well, I hope that if I if I continue on this workout vibe and uh, get my knees and shoulders back into the game and get it to where my gut is no longer hanging over my belt, <laughs> that uh, maybe at some point within the next 10 years, I don't want to live there long term, but I'd like to spend a year in New York City working there just so that I can play in the softball league, the Broadway league one summer. Really? <laughs> I think that would be fun to do that for one year. That is a really awesome goal. I love that. That's exciting. I thought you were going to say you want to go to New York to mix in a specific theater for a specific show. I was like, no, just want to <laughs> no. do the softball league. That's what I, I want to do. Don't get me wrong. I love what I do, but that kind of specificity is insane. And Broadway is such a crazy, is such a crazy gig to start with. What shows get made and how they get made and how they decide what goes where and how they carve up that little bit of real estate is insane. And so much of all of this, even if it's not Broadway, anything in audio, it's bizarre how much of our world is being available and ready at the right time. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to think we live in a meritocracy and that you get things because you're the best one. You're good. Sometimes you get things because you were there in the right moment. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and it, yep. but it's uh, preparing to be there is half the battle. Mm-hmm. So if I'm there because I'm playing in a softball league, then that means I'm there. Boom. Yes. <laughs> I love that. Oh, my God. This has been so much fun. Alicia, you are so, <laughs> like, you're so awesome. Oh, this has been fun. Thanks for asking me on you guys. I, I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, if anybody wants to wants to holler at me um, through the Sound Girls group there on Facebook, I'm happy to help out whoever I can, even if it's just you want to ask questions. So nice. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sound Girls podcast. Visit soundgirls.org for more information. The Sound Girls Living History Project is a collection of oral history interviews that highlights the careers and achievements of women and underrepresented groups in audio. 
One of the interviews is with Stephanie Brown, a sound editor and dialogue and ADR supervisor, known for her work on The Incredible Hulk, 8 Mile, A Wrinkle in Time, and many others. Working on The Matrix was probably my favorite because at the time we didn't know what that movie was going to be, but we knew something was going to happen. And to see the phenomenon that movie became was amazing. And then to be involved in the sequels, it's still the highlight of my career is just being involved in that. Be sure and catch the full interview with Stephanie Brown, along with all the other Living History interviews, over on the Sound Girls website or YouTube channel. Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance. Be sure to check out what our friends in the podcasting community have in store for you at audiopodcast.org.